This is what you say in English. Every week, you will listen to Frank's professional advice on speaking for exam preparation or for your personal development. You will get valuable advice on how to use grammar, vocabulary, discourse, and pronunciation. This is Season 2, Episode 18. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of What You Say in English, the podcast in which I listen to you and give you my professional feedback. Today, I have the last episode of the series of uh, podcast episodes in which I will be discussing the different opinions that people usually have when it comes to language learning. And it's a very important thing for me because in my teaching career, you know, the, all the years that I've been working as a teacher, I've heard a lot of people uh, expressing these opinions, and I would say that there's a, a great number of people out there who are still confused about what we do and how we learn languages. Sometimes they place too much importance on these things, and, and sometimes they are the product of really wrong marketing by, you know, people around the world in language schools. I'm not saying that everybody is culpable, you know, like guilty of, of these things. But generally, people tend to extend the these myths, these uh, misconceptions about language. And many times, I would say, they damage or they, they cause harm in, in, the, in the way people learn languages. Sometimes we have these barriers because we think that the way we learn languages it's is you know something that needs to be learned quickly and 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 of course you you get to hear a lot of people saying that oh learn english in three months and you know how much language how much vocabulary you can learn in in this number of you know weeks and and, and years and and truth be told learning language takes practically a lifetime. It's incredible. Even in your own language, think about it. In your own language, do you really know everything there is to know about your language? There are, you know, experts and obviously not. So to be an independent speaker, a proficient speaker of English, you don't have to learn everything in the language. And, and of course, we're discussing, you know, other things that, you know, people might have probably not an opinion, you know, about these things. The last three questions in the questionnaire that, that I put uh, out there for people to answer are number 10, English should be kept in its pure form. Any contact with other languages only leads to its bastardization. Number 11, any language teacher should be a native speaker of the language they teach. This is, this is going to be very interesting. And number 12, people learn depending on their learning style. A visual learner, for example, learns faster if the information is presented visually. So these are very interesting questions. And I'm going to explore what, what research says and what other experts say about, the, about these things. So to answer the first question that we're going to analyze today, that we're going to be discussing today, is that English should be kept 
in its pure form, any contact with other languages only leads to its bastardization. This is, this is very interesting. And gladly, I would say the, the majority of the people agreed with me because I would say that 48.1% of the respondents said that they completely disagreed with the statement. Very few people, only 17% chose number three, you know, like whether they couldn't say that if they disagreed or, or agreed and 21.2% chose number four, which is almost like completely disagree. And, and it's very interesting because I think, well, most of the people who answered are uh, multilingual. I mean, like they would speak uh, at least two languages, English and, and their first language and probably more languages. And I think they can appreciate the reality that we're, we're living today. I think that they do understand, they do get a, a grasp of what really is, you know, learning language. And this is one thing perhaps, you know, to accept that individual speakers can mix two or more languages, but surely that language themselves should maintain their own integrity. I mean, this is, this is an idea that some people, especially when, when they have nationalistic views about their language, usually think about, you know, that they, they think that, or they believe that the language should be kept their language or the variety that they, they speak, I mean, should be kept pure, you know, to keep their own integrity. Now, is it right and, and good that the English words laptop or roaming are now usually used in Swahili or Turkish or in Spanish, you know, in Spanish, it's very common to use a lot of words from English. And, and I know that, for example, the word taxi, you know, it's ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere in the world. In Russian, for example, words are still prevalent in, in, in Estonian and Georgian and, and 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, that is, I mean, and, and the Japanese, for example, has a huge number of Chinese words and that English vocabulary is fundamentally Latinized by Norman French in the first centuries of the last millennium. Many linguists uh, agree that these are absurd questions because languages are not monoliths. Pure platonic systems somehow separate their spatiotemporal users and uses. What I'm trying to show here so far is that the following ways of thinking will allow us to make progress in, in many areas of knowledge and not only applied linguistics. I mean, both academics and, you know, practitioners and also learners of the language itself. First of all, there's no telepathy to directly share our thoughts. We, we cannot transmit our ideas to other people. So concerted beliefs, concepts, actions, and identities take shape largely through language. Also language is locally modulated. So we end up with different languages, which mold different sets of concerted feelings, beliefs, concepts, actions, and identities, even in the same language. What I'm trying to say is we have like levels of, of language within the language. I mean, the way you probably speak to your friends, you have like a secret code, secret language that might not be understood by your parents, for example. Also languages are mental systems that are 
independent of thoughts. I mean, I've already talked about this, that saying that we, we, the way we think that language does not shape the way we think in our individual minds. They are at the same time, social systems that exist independently of the name standard varieties used by elite groups and used in educated written usage. I would say that actual users of languages use their linguistic resources for their own purposes and in their own ways. When you speak a language and not only English, but your own language, you use it to, with a purpose and, and you have an intention when you use it. And sometimes you make variations to your own language so you can achieve a purpose and you, you may be unaware of how these resources compare with this variety. You know, when I say standard variety, I'm talking about the prestige variety, like what everybody considers to be the most effective way of, of speaking. So interestingly, what emerges from this view is that languages are not monolithic systems existing as as ideal systems in grammar books and dictionaries, but neither are they the products solely on, on individual minds. Instead, they are, and listen to this, they are sociocognitive systems. I say sociocognitive because they, they had to do, they have to do with the brain and they have to do with the social interactions that we have. That's what language is a mediating between isolated individuals and, and named groups living within and across regional and national borders we have. And that's why when we talk about the different levels of languages, we, we talk about, for example, the idiolect, which is your own personal way of, of talking. We also have a sociolect, which is the social variety that you have in your own, in the surrounding environment. So, so because of this and because of their own borders and, and, you know, your, your minds and you know, individuals and communities of speakers, these concepts are very fluid. So believing that governments and academies can, can put a fence, you know, like put a, a limit, like a border, for example, to prevent one language becoming, in, you know, having a contact with another language, it's just nonsense. It's just crazy. I mean, nobody can, can, for example, put a border in Italy. So, you know, the rest of the world cannot eat pizza, for example. Or that everyone outside the borders of China can be forced to celebrate the new year without fireworks. And yet language groups feeling economic and other social pressures from others often try to legislate or otherwise mandate restrictions on the public use of forms of language that originate beyond their national borders. Famously, I don't know if you remember this, signs in English were banned in French-speaking Quebec in 1977 after the electoral triumph of the Quebecois as, as part of the, their campaign for separate sovereignty from the rest of Canada. Likewise, in, I think it was in 1994 that the Toubon law in France legislated against other languages being used in the government, commerce, education, and broadcasting. Similar actions have been taken in Estonia to repel lexical invaders from Russia after independence from the, from the USSR. Here in Spain, I'm located in Spain, everybody remembers, or that's the impression that I have. Everybody keeps saying that Franco, who was the dictator for many years after the 
the civil the civil war in Spain, he actually prohibited other languages, national languages in Spain, like Catalan and Basque and Galician mostly. And I mean, it's true that, for example, in the Spanish language, there are many words that originally came from Galician and from, for example, the word for left is originally from Basque. And, and, and it, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is literally impossible to keep languages isolated. That's not the way languages work. Languages always have a certain level of contact. I, I remember that I did some research once and I wrote a paper. If anybody's interested, let me know. I wrote a paper on how English was a microcosmos in the Appalachian mountains and, and how that people had this myth that the Appalachian English kept the, kept the true form of English back in the 15th and 16th century. It was called Elizabethan English or Shakespeare's English, which is by the way, it's a myth. It's not, not true. The reality is that what happens in the Appalachian mountains is actually what happens around the world with all languages. I mean, they vary and they change. So it's from a linguistic perspective, it's really interesting to see how the Appalachian English or the, all the varieties of Appalachian English have evolved, have changed across the years. So it's literally impossible to say that languages can keep monolithic, that they cannot change or they cannot be, that, that only fuels feelings of nationalism, which are very, very dangerous. We have seen in the history how nationalism can, can affect and can really hurt people in general. So forget all about that idea that English should be kept. And I'm very glad that I, I saw a lot of the respondents agree with me. So remember, English is a language that can, that has become what it is today because of the language contact that it had across all these years and, and it keeps having today. Now, the second question that I will be talking about is a very, should I say, tricky one. It is any language teacher should be a native speaker of the language they teach. Gladly, I would have to say that the majority of the respondents in my questionnaire answered completely disagreed, which makes me very, very happy. Actually, 61.5% of the people disagreed, which is fantastic. It's fantastic news. In general, I would say that the great majority of the people who are learning languages have understood that you don't have to be a native speaker of the language. Although I would have to clarify first the term native speaker, because it's completely unrelated to teaching in general. Native speaker is just a person who was born in a place and speaks a variety from that place. And that person has certain characteristics that makes them a native speakers of that variety of English in, in this case. So I would have to say that being a native speaker, you have to be not exactly born because you can be, for example, adopted and then taken to the other country, but you have to grow up within that environment so that you can develop the certain markers and the certain 
characteristics that makes you a native speaker of that variety of English. But the thing is that as you grow up, you don't speak in the same way. You can spend most of your life living and growing up in a place and then move to another place. You will start having, even if they speak the same language, but with a different accent, you will start changing your own variety because you accommodate. I mean, that's what we call accommodation. It's, it's part of adapting to a new setting, a new environment. So no one speaks in the same way across their lifetime. They, of course, you know, modify and change their variety, but a native speaker would, you know, would not exactly retain the same pronunciation and the same markers, especially if they go through training, for example, if they work for television, if they work for radio, they would try to, you know, have a different way of, of talking. So people have this idea that a native speaker has this ideal way of talking. And I, I would have to say that the, the culprit of that is Noam Chomsky. He is a famous cognitive scientist specialized in linguistics. And he's the, the father of what we call universal grammar. Universal grammar, that's a whole different concept in linguistics. If you want to do a little bit of research, universal grammar is the theory that all languages have a universal grammar that makes them pretty much the same. So the same foundations of, of the language. But in any case, Noam Chomsky established or he departed from the idea that the ideal the ultimate ideal of a speaker is a native speaker of the language. And that brought, I mean, that, that of course, to develop his theory was effective, but that idea permeated and extended in other areas, like for example, language teaching, and it has affected the way people look at English teachers in general and English as a second language or as a foreign language teachers in general, because they extrapolated that ideal into the, you know, teaching English as a foreign language. So people have adopted this idea that you have to be a native speaker from a certain region to be able to teach English effectively. And, and of course you have to talk like one and blah, blah, blah. So in general, I would say that no, you don't have to. I mean, the, the short answer is no, you don't have to. It's not really necessary. And the worst part of all of this is that many people who, for example, are born and, and grow up in other non-English speaking countries, they graduate, they study English because they love it. They love the language. And, and whenever they try to find an English teaching job, they get rejected because if you're not a native English speaker teacher, then you, you will have seen an abundance of teaching opportunities out there, but none for non-native English speakers of English. It is, it is a very, very sad story up to. 70%, according to the British Council, 70% of all the jobs advertised on TEFL.com, which is one of the, the biggest databases in the teaching, English teaching world, the, the, it's the biggest job search engine for English teachers, are for native speakers of English. And yes, it's, you know, it's according to the British Council. And in some countries, such as Korea, it's even worse. Almost all recruiters will reject any application that does not say English native speaker on it. So you basically have to be holder of a passport from an English speaking country. And get this, if you don't have a passport from one of the big countries like 
they they it's it's called the 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 main circle of english speaking countries like the us canada the uk or australia and well south africa is sometimes included if you don't have a passport from any of those countries you're basically rejected and english is official or co-official in other countries as well english is co-official in india for example in countries in africa many african countries have english as a first language in the philippines for example you have people growing up and everything is done in english i have co-workers who basically are filipino and they they their knowledge of english is actually better than their knowledge of tagalog which is one of the national languages in the country and 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 they don't have i mean they are sometimes rejected just because they don't have a passport from one of those countries in my language in the way i see things that's called discrimination you're discriminating people just because they don't have a passport from a specific country and it gets even worse even if you're from a country let's say i have a friend from from scotland and of course that that friend that i have has a very strong glaswegian accent which i love by the way and he was told you have to tone down your accent and make it sound as an rp accent and of course he said no he was lucky to get a job in a very very nice place and now he's working for a big publisher which makes me very happy but in general i mean he was told and he told me that i mean he was told in one of the job interviews he had that he was told you have to tone down you have to you know speak with rp with a british standard accent and of course that's that's like asking you imagine imagine that you come from a region in your country and you have a particular accent and they tell you no you have to speak like you came from another town with a different accent just because they believe that that variety that pronunciation is is more prestige, prestigious so it's how nonsense it is so if you start questioning these practices you are likely to hear one or probably all the following excuses number one students prefer native speakers of english that's a number one excuse and i will i will uh, debunk every idea one by one so number one students prefer native speakers of english number two students need native speakers of english to learn good english number three students need to need native speakers of english to understand the culture that's nonsense by the way and four nests or native uh, english speakers of english teachers are better for public relations <laughs> and and i will try to debunk these four aspects while it is beyond the scope of of course this podcast episode to really you know so in regards to number one the first argument gets repeated like like a mantra you know like when you're doing yoga and has become so deeply ingrained in that few attempt a uh, few people attempt to question its validity however i have never seen a single study that would give it even the slightest however i have never seen a single study that would give it even the slightest backing it's not supported by evidence 
there are no questionnaires, no statistics that actually say it's everything is based on like hearsay or personal experience. On the other hand, I have seen many studies which confirm that students value traits which have nothing to do with the nativeness of, of the teacher, such as being respectful, being a good communicator, being helpful, well-prepared, organized, clear-voiced, and, and hardworking. There are many other studies, and I, I can give you links for this, show that students do not have a clear preference for either group. I mean, for either native or non-native speakers of English, it seems then that it is the recruiters, not the students, who want native speakers of English. For some reason, there's this idea that it makes the academy or the language school look better. The, the second, on the second point, it's, I believe it's a myth. It's a, it's a myth that only native speakers of English can provide a good language model. And what I find troubling is that many in the profession assume language proficiency to be tantamount to being a good teacher and, and mostly trivializing many other important factors such as experience, qualifications, and, and personality. I would say that while proficiency might be a necessity, of course, you have to be proficient. If, you, if it's not your first language, being proficient is, is a must. And schools should ensure that both the prospective native and non-native speakers of English teachers not be treated as the deciding factors that makes or breaks the teacher. Successful teaching is so much more. And, and as David Crystal put it, and I know that I quote David Crystal a lot, but he's, he is like the authority that you have to, um, you know, listen to because he's, he's, he's what that, I mean, that is, he's an authority. He put in an interview that he, and, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read what he said. All sorts of people are fluent, but only a tiny proportion of them are sufficiently aware of the structure of the language that they know how to teach it. So if recruiters care about students' progress, I suggest taking an objective and balanced view when hiring teachers and rejecting the notion that nativeness is equal to teaching ability. So he said it. I didn't say it. He said it. So experts in, in, the, in the business, in this business, have said that it does not matter whether you're a native speaker of English or not. And as for the third argument, you know, that students need native speakers of English to understand the culture, that, you know, that these in a way are mm, inextricably connected. It's, it's, I think it's, I would, I would have to say that it's one of the, the, the silliest things that I have heard, but ask, ask yourself this question. Does a native English speaker culture exist? Is there such a thing as a native English speaker culture? I would, I would say that it doesn't, in my opinion. After all, English is an official language in more than 60. After all, English is an official language in more than 60 states, countries. English is not owned by the English or the Americans. And even if it's convenient to think so, but as, as another expert, uh, Hugh Deller, he's another expert in, in language teaching. Even if we look at one country in particular, there is very clearly no such thing as 
British culture in a monolithic sense. As native speakers, we should have the humility. As native speakers, we should have the humility to acknowledge that no native speakers have experience or understand all aspects of the culture to which they belong. This is, you know, what he said. Finally, the almighty and untouchable market demand, you know, that native speakers of English are better for public relations. So then again, I have seen no evidence. I say that until then, until I receive evidence, until you prove me wrong, I maintain that a much better marketing strategy is to hire the best teachers chosen carefully based on qualifications, experience, and demonstrable language proficiency rather than on their mother tongue, rather than on being born in a country, in a specific country. We are not slaves of the market. We can influence and shape it. As Henry Ford once said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. So it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes you have to create the market. And I know people from Apple know this, for example, people from other brands know this, that sometimes you have to create the market. Perhaps most significant of all, being an, a non-native speaker of English might actually give you certain advantages as a, as a teacher. For example, you can better anticipate students' problems, serve as a successful learning model, or understand how the learners feel actually in a in a recent post that I read quite a few days ago, while preparing for this uh, for this episode, James Taylor, another expert, went as far as wishing he were a non-native speaker of English. And I've I've gotten this from a lot of co-workers that they they wish they they were non-native speakers of English. However, I feel that the question that you know I'm asking here, you know, native, non-native, who's uh, who's better, misses the point slightly i think the answer is neither both both groups can make equally good at bad or bad teachers in general i would i would say that as a conclusion it's all down to the factors that i've been talking about here i mean personal traits qualifications experience and demonstrable language proficiency your mother tongue place of birth sexual orientation height gender or skin color are completely irrelevant so why does this obsession with nativeness refused to go away because for years the english language teaching industry told students that only native speakers of english could teach them good english that uh, native speakers of english were the you know the the panacea for all their language ills but let's be honest here and and have the courage to acknowledge that the industry encouraged a falsehood which many of us choose to turn a blind eye to while others assumed they could do nothing i feel i feel this is this needs to change the good news is that positive changes are already taking place and and for example organizations like tesol you know the teachers of english of students of other languages they have issued public letters condemning the discrimination of non-native speakers of English. And there are many organizations, non-governmental non organizations that have devoted their 
efforts to really getting more egalitarian policies into hiring, you know, their hiring practices. There's an association called TEFL Equity Advocates, you know, and, and, and how everybody is, you know, in, included. Marek, he's from originally from Poland and, and he has done an incredible job, you know, in, in raising awareness on, on all these things. So if I can help with, you know, lifting or taking away misconceptions about language teaching and the, the, the idea that native speakers of English are the best teachers, so be it. So the last question I left in this, in this series of uh, episodes is very interesting because in, I would say that it was one of the last myths that I had to disbelieve myself. And it has to do with the learning style. The question that I posted was, people learn depending on their learning style. A visual learner, for example, learns faster if the information is presented visually. Now, the, it's very interesting because I'm not surprised by the result that I got because 48.8, almost 50% of the people chose completely agree and 27.2% chose the following number, which was number two, and only 3.2% chose that they completely disagreed. Nine people, nine people out of 283 people that responded the questionnaire that I, I put online. And I'm not surprised, to be honest. I mean, because I used to be one of them up to a few years ago when I did my Delta, my diploma in language teaching by the University of Cambridge, well, Cambridge Assessment English, I discovered by, because one of the tutors that we had back then showed us this presentation with an expert talking about the learning styles and how learning styles were a myth. So just to explain the, the myth that we are trying to uh, uncover here is that different students have different modes of learning and their learning could be improved by only matching one's teaching with uh, that preferred learning mode. In other words, the common myth for learning styles as an effective teaching and learning approach is that Students will improve the, their learning if they are taught in their particular learning style. There is a range of different types of learning styles. For example, uh, auditory, visual, tactile, or, well, tactile is actually kinesthetic, you know, like moving. It's usually abbreviated as VARK, you know, like V-A-R-K. Uh, there is actually very little evidence for any consistent set of learning styles that can be used reliably to identify genuine differences in the learning needs of people. And evidence, scientific evidence, suggests that it is unhelpful to assign learners to groups or categories on the basis of a supposed learning style. And, and then we, we ask ourselves, like, where did this myth come from and why has it caught on to such a great extent? From what I've read and, and the little bit of research that I did before, this episode is that the learning styles theory has existed since the 1970s with over 
70 models. There are three main reasons, basically, why the idea of teaching by learning styles has caught on to such great extent. First of all, due to uh, it being related to certain areas of the brain being mapped to specific activities. For example, if we learn music, I mean, we associate a part of the brain, you know, when, when we learn music. Also, the commercialization of industries around learning styles to sell professional learning to schools. And, and finally, as a third point, the publication of studies that show a large impact of learning styles on students' outcomes. Now, the idea surrounding learning styles seems to make sense. Um, it's understandable. You know, there are different regions of the brain that are involved to a greater extent in certain functions, for example, language development and musical training. So it is assumed that learners should receive information in visual, auditory, or kinesthetic forms, according to which part of their brain works better. But this is not the case as the brain is actually interconnected through, uh, and this is a, the scientific term it has, it's the corpus callosum. It's the, the area that connects the left and the right hemispheres. And the study of rare neurobiological conditions shows that the brain is able to use neuronal matter available. That is, if the function of half the brain is removed, the brain will still use what neurons are available to perform the required learning. So the, the brain is capable of compensating, so to speak. So the, the commercialization of an industry around learning styles has helped to spread the use and belief of the effectiveness of teachers changing their teaching style to meet the preferred learning style of the student to improve academic outcomes. Another reason for the proliferation of the myth on learning styles is the publication of meta-analysis, which showed a large impact on students learning from teachers using specific learning styles. These studies have subsequently been shown to be based on flawed methodology. There's been a, a wide range of papers and, and studies that have debunked these flawed studies. Now, Professor Paul Howard Jones from the University of, of Bristol found in a study that 95% of UK teachers believed that students learn better when information is presented in their preferred learning style. For example, in this case, visual, auditory, or kinesthetic, meaning that this myth is still prevalent. Now, the Education Endowment Foundation's Teaching and Learning Toolkit, which is used by half of all the senior leaders in schools and to make decisions, clearly presents that different learning styles have no evidential basis whatsoever. But you may be wondering, like, so what's the problem? I mean, if, if, if it doesn't have any outcome, I mean, like, if, if there's nothing to it, why not planning a class so, you know, to make it more attractive to students? What's the danger of teaching according to this myth? Now, the danger of teaching to this myth is that by labeling students as a certain type of learner and changing the style, the teaching style, to match this type of learning, we are encouraging students to develop a fixed mindset. And, and this mindset can be thought of as one in which a student's belief 
of what they can achieve is controlled by their inherited characteristics. For example, predispositions and intelligence, rather than the belief that effort can and does make a difference. Now, learners are very unlikely to have a single learning style. So restricting students to activities matched to their reported preferences may possibly damage their progress. This is especially true for younger learners in primary schools whose preferences and approaches to learning are very flexible. Remember that that age children are still developing. So they have a very flexible brain and, and we call it plasticity. So when, when that plasticity is still developing, we cannot pigeonhole the uh, learners at, especially, especially as, at such a young age. Studies where teaching activities are targeted towards particular learners based on an identified learning style have not convincingly shown any major benefit, particularly for low attaining students, you know, the, those students who struggle with education and impacts that are recorded are generally low or negative. If teachers believe this myth to be true, they will provide feedback to their students that may inhibit their learning. For example, you have not achieved this because you are a kinesthetic learner, for example. Oh, and, and then you have to focus on this. You have to learn by action. So uh, this way, the student will be limited by their self-belief as to what they can achieve. And this is, this is highly damaging. Feedback has a significant impact on learning, contributing a gain of eight months worth of learning progress when implemented well. So if a teacher believes that learning styles exist and, and they should teach according to them, this could, could inhibit the teacher's ability to provide feedback that will encourage a growth mindset and thus inhibit student learning. The, the impact of feedback to encourage a growth mindset is shown to be especially important for students from disadvantaged settings. One of the key tenets in the attractiveness of teaching to learning styles is to make the learning easy. We want to make it accessible. There are major flaws in this belief that making learning easy will increase learning. Not necessarily. Sometimes the challenge of learning is what makes you learn. Confusion and having desirable difficulties is important for helping students move their learning from a short to long-term memory. While it is well known that intense focus is generally required to alter the circuits and make new connections. I mean, when you program your brain to do certain activities, you need focus. Professor Stephen Dinham from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education summarizes the danger of teaching to this myth in his recent book called Leading Teaching and Learning. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to read the quote because I thought it was very, very interesting. He says, however, it does matter because of the problems and harm that can be caused by the categorization, labeling, and limiting of learning experiences of students through the continued belief in an, an application of so-called learning styles. Would we tolerate doctors continuing to use a disproved harmful treatment? So according to the evidence, what, what's the reality? I mean, if we don't have a, a learning styles, then what do we have? And, and 
Sadly, the reality is that evidence of, on learning styles as an effective teaching and learning approach is very limited. This means that there is at least one meta-analysis with quantitative evidence of impact on achievement or cognitive or curriculum outcome measures. Noting the low level of evidence security, it is calculated that using learning styles within the classroom, for example, to match uh, teaching style to learning style, has a very low impact with an effect size of 0.13 or two months worth of learning progress. Now, teachers' time and resources would be better spent, in my opinion, on focusing on providing timely and specific feedback to students, as there is strong evidence, and there's more evidence for this that shows that this has an impact on eight months worth of learning progress. So I think we are, we are underestimating the power of feedback. And this is basically what I do also with my podcast, you know, like trying to give meaningful feedback to people in, and in generally my classes. So this was the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for joining me in these four episodes in, in which I explore a little bit more about what learning is and, and you know, what, what people need to know about learning languages. Sometimes we are so self-absorbed into these myths, these sometimes quite damaging beliefs that in, in many times we don't realize that we can actually make progress in, in learning. And just because we have to remember the simple things, you know, you have to work hard. I mean, learning a language is like learning another skill. In my opinion, it's like pretty much learning how to play the piano, how le learning how to sing, learning how to do cooking, for example. It's, it's, it's all about practicing. It's all about being open-minded. It's all about loving what you do. If you don't like learning languages, if you see it as an obligation, it, it will be very difficult for you to learn. And, and this is basically what, what I wanted to do with this series of podcasts. Now I'm going back to my regular routine and, you know, analyzing people's English and giving feedback to students and analyzing celebrities English. And, you know, I've noticed that, for example, other people on the internet, on YouTube are kind of following. I'm not saying they're copying me because I, I, I don't think they, if they've even heard of me, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see that more and more people are starting to analyze other people's English. And it's, it's in, it, very good. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that we all get into this mode of, you know, trying to assess other people's English. So, and remember, if you want to keep in touch with me or send me your recording or set up an interview with me or even a mock exam, either for Cambridge exams or IELTS, send me an email to podcast at languageteaching.es and I will happily have you on my show. And thank you very much. Enjoy what is left of the weekend. And until next week, bye-bye.